Welcome to the Leadership Disrupted Podcast. This is Dan Rust. In 2016, I wrote a book on navigating interpersonal politics and business culture in the workplace. And when HarperCollins published the book titled Workplace Poker, as part of the publicity campaign, I appeared on hundreds of radio shows and podcasts and had a chance to speak with a lot of callers about their own experiences with corporate politics. And as you can imagine, most of the experiences they shared were not great. You generally call into a radio talk show to rant about something, not to give a big positive shout out to Jane in accounting. And in the years since, I've continued to receive emails and messages from people who have read the book. And while I certainly think the stories I shared in Workplace Poker were compelling, the personal accounts that readers have shared with me since have been truly eye-opening, sometimes painful to hear and have definitely helped me keep my finger on the pulse of the modern work world. From the front line to the C-suite, in big corporations, small businesses, the military, nonprofits, government organizations, even agriculture and oil fields, I hear from people throughout the world, and one message in particular I want to share with you today. A few weeks ago, I received this through my LinkedIn messenger. I'm only editing it slightly to cut out a few of the personal identifiers. It begins... Hi, Dan. Read your book. Loved it. Wish I had it a few years earlier when I was just starting out. I've got six years at my current employer, a global Fortune 500 company, and I really want to build a career here. I hopped around a lot of jobs in my 20s and early 30s, and now with a family, I really want to make this one work long term. I think I have a good shot here. They recently put me on a leadership development track, so they are investing in my future with them. But here's my issue. I think our CEO is a horrible person. Really, all of the senior executives are not people I admire. The upper management VPs and most of the directors too. They are not good people. But especially the CEO. He gets a lot of press coverage and every time I see photos or video of him on his super yacht, when I read stories of him buying out an entire theme park for a day just so he and his lady can ride all the rides alone, when I see the corporate jets and Italian sports cars and read about the billions and billions he is making, then I look at my paycheck, the hours I'm working, the grind that my own employees on my team have to go through. We measure their productivity minute by minute, and we pay them well, but within two years, we still grind most of them down and out of the business. I used to think that upper management just didn't get it, but I think now that it's a conscious part of their business model. Some of the employees on my team will finish a long shift with us and then go on to a second job because they have families to support. I don't begrudge someone building a business and doing well, but this seems just wrong, extreme. And the real problem for me is that I find myself getting angry, frustrated, demoralized. I go to work every day because I have to. I do a good job because I want to advance for the money, for my family. But for at least a year, my heart hasn't been in it. So I guess my question for you is, how do I get my motivation back? Because if I don't, I can tell that eventually I'm going to burn out. Oh, and meanwhile, I read online today that our CEO spent over $40 million on a home in California, which he plans to live in occasionally when he's visiting the state, while my mortgage payment eats up almost 40% of my paycheck. Anyway, I really don't expect you to have a solution or an answer, but thanks for reading this. So... That was quite a message, and it's not the first one like this I've received, but it is among the longest and most painful to read. He's right that I don't have a great and quick answer for him. Not a real answer. Keep working hard and you'll make it big someday too? 
that's not an answer. Maybe things might be better for him somewhere else, a smaller business where the relative wealth of the upper management isn't pushed in his face by social media every day. Maybe. But the reason I'm sharing this with you is because the message, this person, he is not alone. I think his voice is the voice of a lot of employees, maybe some of your employees. There is something happening, broadly speaking, and a lot of people, for a lot of reasons, are feeling dissatisfied and demoralized and de-energized, and they aren't sure what to do about it. We are living and working in disruptive times, technology-driven upheavals, economic recession and inflation and supply chain issues, global pandemics, terrorist attacks, trade wars, culture wars, and of course, just plain old-fashioned wars. Adding to the turmoil, we have steadily rising employee expectations for job satisfaction, for fair compensation, and for professional growth, while at the same time, employers are under pressure to increase productivity and squeeze maximum value out of every employee. So employees, especially younger ones, are quitting faster when they're not satisfied on the job, and employers are talking about increasing engagement and reducing quiet quitting, while at the same time, they seem to be doing things either intentionally or accidentally to burn out their employees. So leaders often lose their very best employees, which means they have to hang on to suboptimal employees, which again impacts the motivation and engagement of their remaining best employees. It's a vicious, crazy cycle. Societal and cultural shifts have added to the disruptive career landscape. Even the positive trends toward increased diversity, inclusion, and outreach to disenfranchised groups, these are creating opportunity for some, diminishing opportunity for others, and all of this is contributing to a working world that is increasingly unpredictable and stressful and disrupted. Even the very concept of leadership is being disrupted. What is a leader today? What should we expect from leaders? Should they be the best and brightest among us? Should they be examples of character and integrity that we can all aspire to emulate? When you look at the leaders we see most often in the news and social media, are they? Should leaders today be confident or should they be humble? Should a leader be people-centric or metrics and finance-centric? Should they be hard-charging drivers of people or empathetic supporters of people? When leaders have to make hard choices between the interests of people and profits, between the interests of shareholders, investors, and the community within which they do business, well, 10 or 20 years ago, I think most of us would have had clear answers to these questions. But not so much today. I'm sure some of you listening to this are getting frustrated because you're thinking, yes, of course, the primary responsibility of a company, of a leader, is to make a profit for shareholders and investors, because if you don't do that, they aren't going to invest. And by making a profit for shareholders, in fact, a lot of other social good results. That Ayn Randian view of capitalism is very appealing, especially to shareholders, investors, and owners. And I'm not arguing that it's right or wrong. What I'm seeing is that there really is a profound change occurring in the way that people think about their work, in the way they think about their relationship with employers, and even the fundamental nature of business, of capitalism, is going through a rethinking, a reimagining, from thinking of a business purely or primarily as a profit vehicle for shareholders or owners, to thinking of a business as a social enterprise. I'm not saying that this change has occurred. I'm saying that we are in a time of transition. And in times of transition, 
Some people get frustrated and angry when they feel as if they are losing something they've been able to comfortably count on in the past. Recently, I was having a friendly conversation with the owner of about 20 franchised quick service restaurants. He employs almost 500 people and is rightfully proud of the business he has built over the past 40 years. And when I made the comment that a business today has to view itself as a social enterprise that serves a community, solving challenges and creating opportunities for people within the community and doing so profitably, both to provide shareholder value and to earn the right to continue the social enterprise, what did he hear? It sounds like you're talking about socialism, was his response. The phrase social enterprise triggered him, and I don't think he really heard anything after that. But the reality is that today, a significant number of leaders in business, government, and our society at large throughout the world are calling for big changes in capitalism and how we measure it and how we monitor it and how we go forward into the next century. Some leading businesses are moving from a long-held standard of shareholder capitalism to a new model of stakeholder capitalism, at least in theory. Let me share just one recent example. A few years ago, the Business Roundtable, which is the main lobbying arm for almost 200 of the world's largest corporations, made a major announcement. They made a new pledge that shareholder return was no longer viewed as the main objective of their business. Almost 200 CEOs of some of the largest companies in the world stated publicly that businesses should focus on all stakeholders, including employees, customers, and local communities. If you're not familiar with the Business Roundtable, for 50 years this group has existed to amplify the business interests of many of the world's largest companies. They have leveraged the expertise of their CEO members to address major issues facing our world through research and advocacy. The Business Roundtable advocates policies to spur job creation, improve competitiveness, and strengthen the economy. So, the Business Roundtable, which exclusively represents chief executive officers of some of the world's leading companies, with a combined plus 20 million employees and more than $9 trillion in annual revenues, these CEOs threw out their old mission statement, which said that a company's primary responsibility is to make money for shareholders. That original mission statement seemed to be inspired by the late Milton Friedman, the economist who wrote a piece in the 1970s saying, the social responsibility of business is to make a profit for the shareholders, period. Now, to be intellectually thorough and honest, even Friedman, if you read him thoroughly, acknowledged that businesses operate under a broader set of responsibilities. That, of course, you have to make money for the corporation, but how you do that matters because you have a responsibility to these different constituencies. But Friedman definitely had a shareholder-first, investor-first, owner-first business philosophy. Now, just in case I'm triggering you with any of this, I am not advocating any particular business philosophy, not Ayn Rand capitalism, although I read Atlas Shrugged twice, not Bernie Sanders socialism, not the concept of stakeholder capitalism or the social enterprise. I know this is controversial. The editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal and The Economist have said this is a mistake. Nobody should muddy up the waters. Shareholders own the company. And I know there is a tendency to polarize. It's either one or the other. But most business leaders like yourself today do not live in a black or white world. Most live in a business world with shades of gray in between, and they have to lead through that complexity and ambiguity. So I'm not advocating. I'm observing that we are in a time where all of these concepts are facing disruption. 
I'm not advocating, but I do have a point of view. In a capitalist democracy, there are more voters than investors. There are more voters than shareholders, more voters than business owners. So in a capitalist democracy, if you are looking to build and sustain a long-term business, you can't ignore that it is society that gives you the long-term license to operate, that determines in the long run that you can operate. And for a global business, when you think of every country you're in, you are a citizen of that country philosophically. You're not just leveraging another market. And so to last for the long term and be able to create value for shareholders, I think you have to also create value for all those stakeholders and other constituents. When I've spoken with business leaders over the past few years, there are definitely many differences and variations of opinion, but the general trend is towards something changing in the way business leaders are thinking about their corporations and their responsibility to society. Some of them are starting to think about how do they move forward from the model of the company and our capitalist system, which emerged in particular from the middle of the 20th century with a focus on profits and shareholder return to a recognition that our capitalist system is more than that. It is something that can really contribute to addressing the problems that we face as individuals and societies. And business can play a critical role in that, in a form that is not only beneficial for our societies and us as individuals, but beneficial for companies, for shareholders, for owners. In this viewpoint, companies are actually driven by different sorts of capital. There's financial capital, there's physical capital, there's human capital, intellectual capital, and also social and natural capital. In the history of the 20th century, we had a shortage of financial capital and physical capital, and so we built this system around providing rewards to that scarce capital. And in the 21st century, we're moving in a very different direction, where natural capital, social capital, and human capital, intellectual capital, that's what's in short supply. And it seems to make sense that we need to evolve our system around those resources. Now, I'm worried right now that this isn't the version of reality that you as the listener may want to hear. You may quickly end up thinking about moving on to something else, some other podcast, some other perspective that is more in alignment with what you want to hear. Because there has been a disruptive shift in our information consumption habits. So it's easy now to shift away from what we disagree with or find uncomfortable or uninteresting and toward content that fully aligns with our current interests and point of view. So if I'm losing you with this focus on the shift toward shareholder capitalism, please stay with me just a bit longer. I've spoken with CEOs who strongly assert that they support the classic view of capitalism and they are already taking care of their stakeholders. They state that they wouldn't be in business if they didn't take care of their customers and take care of their employees and care about the communities within which they operate. Wherever one lands regarding the ideal future of our capitalist system, there is a growing realization that if you effectively serve a broad cross-section of stakeholders, that's actually conducive to generating a premium return for shareholders. This is not an either-or. Maybe in the short term, a business could prioritize profits at the expense of other constituents, but in the long term, you have to align those interests to deliver premium shareholder returns consistently. And this new realization is disrupting how we measure business performance and success. In the post-Depression era, at the beginning of the 1930s, there was a recognition that we needed to improve our ways of measuring what companies were doing. 
And so a whole system of accounting put forward in particular by the SEC in the United States, they came up with a method of standardizing the measurement of company performance around financial performance. Now, in the 21st century, we find ourselves with this greater influence of human, social, and natural assets, but we haven't built a similar system of measurement to account for or evaluate the impact that companies are having on those forms of assets. So this is another area of gray ambiguity that business leaders have to deal with. Many leaders also struggle to reconcile this optimistic, socially conscious vision with their day-to-day reality and responsibility to their enterprise. They're asking, how do we maximize social impact at the same time that we also fulfill our obligation to our shareholders? Look, obviously there are many people much more qualified to answer this than I am, but I've been privy to many of these conversations and I can share some of the best answers and general thinking that I've heard, much of which focuses on what is the core business design, including the business model and ensuring that there is built in some form of a stakeholder capitalism construct. In other words, if you do well and then the world around you does well, then you're in good shape. But if you do well and the world around you is not doing well, and then you have to make up for it with a lot of ESG, then that model will not work sustainably. So positive social impact has to be in the design of the business model, the economic model. The social purpose of the corporation can't be an afterthought. It can't be essentially, hey, let's make enough big profits so we can eventually do some social good somewhere. That's not it at all. So more and more, I'm hearing that phrase, the social purpose of a corporation. That's not something you would have heard among CEOs probably even as recently as five years ago, but I'm hearing it today, definitely. I've witnessed these leaders across industries, big and small, embrace their role in this new movement. It's become a topic of conversation in almost every boardroom and C-suite these days, and companies aren't just talking about it, they are actually taking action. I think that what has fundamentally changed is that businesses are starting to question shareholder primacy for real. I think that when you talk to most CEOs, they do think the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of putting shareholders above everybody else, including maybe especially their workers. And it's hard to look at what's happened in the world politically, the kind of whatever form of populism, whether you're a Trump populist, a Bernie Sanders populist, a Modi populist in India, all of this populism is taking hold as a reaction to wage stagnation over four decades and people feeling increasing financial and social pressure. So there is a lot of talk in the C-suite and action, but broadly speaking, it does not seem to be practically impacting the lives of frontline employees. At least most frontline employees don't perceive an impact on their lives. From the frontline perspective, some of this is obvious. Of course, no company cannot pay attention to its customers or its employees or the communities it operates in, or it wouldn't be in business very long. But it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of where the emphasis is. It's a matter of when there are tough trade-offs, do shareholders always win? And do these other stakeholders always end up with the short end of the stick? Many of your frontline employees would say, yes, that's the way it works in their real world. And again, it's hard to look at the aggregate statistics like wage stagnation and conclude that companies by and large have been successfully balancing the interests of all their stakeholders. Otherwise, the numbers would be different. And frontline employees are not patient. They are not trusting their business leaders to eventually figure it out. So there's a lot of pressure on leaders, especially to provide their employees 
with tangible support to navigate the disruptions in their careers. Providing resources for the upskilling or reskilling of workers has become another critical challenge. As our economy, our society, and our businesses emerge from the various crises that I mentioned earlier, recession, inflation, supply chain disruption, technology disruption, and possibly others, probably others, we're seeing a new permanent class of remote workers and hybrid workers. We're seeing businesses moving to enhance their technology platforms to be optimally productive in this new environment. We're also seeing a real focus on extreme automation. We're seeing businesses building a lot of new flexibility into their supply chains. And there is big disruption around this new way of working, particularly permanent remote and hybrid workers and the skills those workers need to be optimally productive. The need for reskilling and upskilling to deal with the rapid pace of change is just going to accelerate more. With all of this disruption, for many people, the old job doesn't exist any longer, or the old way they created value in the work world no longer creates the same level of value. So this is going to put a huge focus under the spotlight on what we're all going to do to reskill people for these new areas so that they can find a place in the digital economy. Up to now, the increasing digital economy has not been particularly inclusive, meaning that people from all walks of life, not just racial, gender, and cultural inclusion, but inclusion that represents all of the dimensions of human diversity, including attention to mid-career professionals who need to reskill, people without a college degree, people with unconventional backgrounds, the neurodiverse, the close to retirement but not ready to retire, the young employees struggling to gain traction, the atypical, helping all of these people find their way onto a path toward a productive and positive life in this digital economy, that's a challenge that is just going to get bigger and accelerate. But how are we going to meet that challenge? Even before the most recent crises, this challenge was huge. So again, more pressure on leaders like you. For more than 20 years, I've been conducting a global employee attitude survey. And when I look at the aggregate results each year and compare the year-over-year -year trends, I can tell you that today, what employees are asking for is number one, empathy from leadership. They want a leader who sees them, who gets them, who understands them, who cares about them, who respects them, and sees them as unique and valuable human beings, not simply functions in a system. They're asking for growth opportunities. Every employee, not just early stage or frontline employees, every employee is looking for opportunities to develop, to grow, to become more. Yes, to bring more value to the organization, but also to enhance their capabilities that may improve their career potential beyond wherever they're currently employed. They're asking for a fair work reward contract. And of course, the definition of fair is open for debate, but clearly there is a pressure here. And what seems fair in the C-suite very often does not seem reasonable on the front line. And I'm not here right now to tell you what a fair work reward contract is, but I am seeing the disconnect. And you are probably aware that the disconnect exists as well, which partly means we as leaders have not done a great job of communicating the full range of value and benefits that we bring to our employees. Employees, broadly speaking, are also rejecting menial or mundane work. They don't want to be mindless drones. They don't want to be flesh machines. They want to do work that matters, and they want to do work that engages them. They're also asking for work-life balance. 
No, they're demanding work-life balance. 10 or 20 years ago, work-life balance was something you discussed with an employer after you'd been on the job maybe six months or a year. Now it's something that is very overtly discussed at the start of job interviews. So employees, like it or not, are more comfortable asserting their demand for work-life balance, as well as their need for physical and emotional well-being and mental health support services. They're much more comfortable talking about this, more comfortable expressing their needs, and whether you like it or not, whether you're comfortable with it or not, whether you think it's valid or viable or not, I don't want to say your opinion is irrelevant. All I'm telling you is that this is the direction the world is moving. In addition, employees are asking to rethink the structure of work itself, the nature of work itself. They're rejecting work models and structures that were essentially created or defined in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Employees are much more open and much more assertive regarding asking the question, why are we doing it this way? How about this other way? And finally, employees are insistent that the organizations they work with align with their values. Again, this is no longer a nice to have. This is something that employees insist upon. And while they may take a job with an organization that isn't in alignment with their values and do it because they need the paycheck, for those employees, the clock is ticking because they are going to be looking, they are going to be scanning the world, and as soon as they can find something that is in alignment with what's important to them, they're going to make that leap. And frankly, technology makes that much, much easier. It only takes one frustrating conversation with your manager to cause you to go online to LinkedIn and check out the kind of jobs that the LinkedIn algorithm is feeding to you individually. And whether or not the grass is actually greener on the other side of the fence, when you're constantly being shown greener grass, greener grass, greener grass, no wonder we have employees who are continuously feeling frustrated and looking for opportunities to move on. So employee needs and priorities are evolving. And it makes sense that leadership would need to evolve as well. And in fact, in this disrupted landscape I've been describing, to develop evolved leaders who can best serve their companies and their employees we need to help them in a variety of ways. First and foremost, we have to help them with skills and strategies to cultivate the engagement of their employees. What it takes to fully engage an employee today is different than what it took 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But in many cases, we have not helped leaders truly understand what it is going to take at a very practical, on-the-ground level to drive optimal employee engagement. We need to help them with skills for more agile thinking and execution. In a world of disruption, it's important for leaders to have the ability to adjust, to react, to experiment, to refine. You don't want them to simply be on a mental treadmill doing the same thing, thinking the same way over and over and over again. But we haven't necessarily helped leaders develop this agile thinking and execution capability. They also need help with the skills that lead to inclusion and transparency. It is one thing to tout the importance of inclusive leadership and then hope that your leaders will, number one, buy into the vision and then know how to execute that vision. But effective, inclusive leadership is driven by a set of skills. And it's not fair that we expect our leaders to lead inclusively if we haven't helped them develop those skills. Emotional intelligence, emotional effectiveness, and the skills to create psychological safety for our employees. Again, another incredibly core skill for leaders in today's world, as well as providing leaders with both the ability and the capacity to mentor their emerging leaders. Young employees coming into the business are expecting to be mentored. They're expecting to be nurtured. They're expecting to be coached. 
And while many of us started our careers in an era of sink or swim, figure it out yourself, that is not the expectation, that is not the environment that most young employees today are expecting to work in, and it's not the environment that produces an optimal experience for them or optimizes the value that they can bring to the business. In addition, helping leaders learn to operate with a service-oriented mindset. If it doesn't come naturally to them, it does require development and coaching to help a leader understand that he or she can be just as effective, just as driven, they can be just as focused on producing results, but they can do so with a service-oriented mindset that actually engages and motivates their employees. And finally, with all of these things that we've been discussing in mind, another area where we can really help leaders is to provide them with stress and energy management skills. There is a lot on the shoulders of leaders today. They have pressures from the top down. They have pressures from the bottom up. They're being asked to do more with less. They're being asked to do faster with less. And if we're going to ask them to do that and not burn them out, it is incumbent that we support them with specific development in the area of stress and energy management. So I know I've covered a lot of ground. And with all of this in mind, everything that you've been hearing so far, this is the purpose of the Leadership Disrupted podcast, to help leaders like you navigate all of this, to help you, to help you help others, to help you impact your community, and to help you grow your business. But before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to circle back to the first message that I shared at the start of the podcast. The leader who was feeling demoralized, demotivated, and de-energized, who felt that the senior leaders in his business were not people that he could respect, especially the CEO. I spent a lot of time thinking about this before I reached back out to him. And I provided some guidance, which I'll share with you. I don't know if it's the right guidance. I don't know if it's the best advice. But here are the key points that I shared. Number one, don't ignore the reality of what you see in your senior leaders but also acknowledge that you aren't seeing the full reality. You're seeing just a slice of reality. Number two, the company is investing in you. So let them get everything you possibly can out of their efforts to help you become a better leader. This will help them. And more importantly, it will help you. Number three, focus on what you can control as a leader, making a positive difference in the lives of the people you lead every day. And then keep a journal or in some way, keep track of how you are growing and evolving as a leader and how you are impacting the lives of others. Every day, that should be your focus. You may or may not have a long-term career with this company. Let go of that as a specific goal because the conflict between that goal and what you see in your senior leadership is causing your cognitive dissonance. Your current situation is a place to grow and positively impact others. Let the future unfold for you because if you get these first two things right, focusing on your growth and your ability to positively impact others every day, your future will go where it needs to go. So that's the advice I shared with him. I'd love to see your comments or additional advice for someone in his situation. Of course, I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and be notified of new episodes every Tuesday. Our next episode will be a masterclass I delivered recently to a group of senior leaders called Cracking the Engagement Code. So thank you for listening to this first episode of Leadership Disrupted. In future shows, I'm going to invite leaders who have practical, real-world advice to share. And of course, I invite your questions and comments, which will also guide the direction of future shows. 